This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Mark Carrigan. Dr. Mark Carrigan is a lecturer in education at the University of Manchester, where he is also the program director for the MA Digital Technologies, Communication and Education. He directs the Post-Pandemic University Project, which is an international network comprising an online magazine, podcast hub, and conference series. He's the author of Social Media for Academics, published by Sage, and is now in its second edition. Today, we will be discussing his co-edited book titled The Public and Their Platforms, Public Sociology in an Era of Social Media. Uh, This is the book that he has co-edited with Lambros Fatsis, who unfortunately hasn't been able to join us for the podcast. The book is published by the Bristol University Press in 2021. Mark, I'm so glad to have you here and welcome to this conversation. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's really good to be here. Right. So let me begin by asking you your motivation behind putting this book together. Well, it it came from conversations Lambros and I have been having over a number of years about our frustration with the public sociology literature and our sense that it could nonetheless not be dispensed with, that there was something in public sociology which we needed to keep thinking about and analysing and talking about, but that the existing literature was unhelpful in how it had developed over time. And my own interest in social media uh, was thrown into the mix as well, which led to the book taking the form that it did. And I I came to public sociology and social media at the same time as a part-time PhD student in the late uh, part of the first decade of the 21st century, so 2008, 2009. And it was obvious to me the two things were linked. So I started to think about how sociology can engage with and for publics at the same time as I began to use platforms like Twitter, which seemingly offered a immediate, free and effective way of interacting with audiences outside the academy. So I started from the assumption public sociology and social media necessarily went hand in hand. And over the next 10 years, uh, I realized the reality is much more complex and ambiguous than I realized at the start. So the book was also me trying to investigate the assumptions that I'd made and to try and bring some conceptual and practical clarity to the question of what does social media have to do with public sociology? 
and vice versa. Right. So let me also ask you this question about what public sociology is and how does your book redefine uh, public sociology and, you know, what sociologists do? Well, that's a very good question because there's a voluminous literature of public sociology. And the question it spends most time addressing is what is public sociology? Uh, so I think there's a common vernacular use of public sociology, which effectively is used to refer to activism by sociologists. But one of the problems with this definition is that it leaves it unclear to what extent is that activism sociological, at what point are things being done in a professional capacity, at what point are things being done in a private capacity, do these distinctions even make sense? So there's this widespread understanding that public sociology has something to do with activism. Uh, in the more formal literature, which really came into being with Michael Burroway's presidential address at the American Sociological Association conference uh, quite some time ago now, he distinguished between four types of sociology, which he offered as ideal types. So professional sociology, policy sociology, critical sociology, and public sociology. And while these this typology, I think, does have utility, the lack of clarity in the wider sociological community about exactly what public sociology is, and the fact the academic literature in its current form began with the typology, means there's this tendency to classify and reclassify, to argue about the relationship between the categories, to offer new categories instead. And Lambros and I shared the assumption that this often isn't very helpful, uh, and it certainly is often not very interesting. So instead, we just wanted to throw everything up in the air and try and start from scratch and think, what do we mean when we talk about the public? What do we mean when we talk about sociology? What do we mean when we talk about the relationship between the two? And where do platforms, such as social media platforms, come into it? And that's where we started, really. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange book, I think, because it is simultaneously about practice and it's also about social ontology. But we felt that the debate needed to start somewhere fresh. And hopefully we have contributed to doing that, or at least provided a slightly different perspective on public sociology and how we ought to think about it. Right. So do you think that public sociology is also connected to other disciplines? I, I think so. And one of the things I regret in retrospect is that we only drew that out in the course of a few pages where we talk about public anthropology, public geographies, um, public criminology. So the public humanities, there have been these explicit turns towards the public across a whole range of disciplines and fields. And in that sense, we think it speaks to something more fundamental about how knowledge is organized in the contemporary university. So as many critics of public sociology are prone to point out, actually, you know, should this not be the assumption that this is always what we're doing? This is what many people do see themselves as doing. But the urge to put a label on it is very scholastic in that sense. It defines us as doing something new in a way that speaks to strange tensions in contemporary higher education. And these tensions do cut across disciplines. And one of the 
dangers in talking about public sociology is that we lose sight of this broader perspective. We lose sight of what public sociology and public anthropology have in common. Um, and they both reflect a desire to increase the immediacy and effect of our interaction with the social world outside the boundaries of the institution. There's this sense that we need to get beyond the ivory tower. And one of the things we try to do in the book is to interrogate the assumptions underlying that, to begin to think about where this sense of division, this sense of being cut off from society uh, came from, and to think about how social media might potentially ameliorate that sense and the real situation it embodies as well as in other ways contributing to making it making it worse. So the concerns of the book cut across disciplines. And while we talk primarily about public sociology, we, we think it could be also framed in terms of public scholarship more broadly. What does it mean to produce knowledge and do knowledge work in a way that's orientated towards the needs, interests, and values of publics outside the academy? Right. So how would you locate this edited book by both you and Lambros in this context? And what are some of the methods that you use? Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's an authored book. Uh, so it's not a collection of other people's essays. Uh, it's a contribution we put together, um, building on our different interests over a, a couple of years. Uh, in terms of methods, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a conceptual book, ultimately. So, you know, we don't use research methods in that sense. But there is a detailed uh, history of public sociology, uh, a detailed literature review of the public sociology literature. And we draw on platform studies as well, which is a field that emerges from the intersection between media theory and science and technology studies to think about the role of infrastructures in facilitating sociological work and public sociolog sociological work. And so we position um, the notion of the platform as something that sociology is always depended upon, but professional sociology takes academic journals, conferences for granted. These are, so to speak, legacy platforms that are faded into the background. And so when we think about social media, we're not advocating that we abandon journals, although they certainly need reform but rather suggesting that we recognize that these legacy platforms have been supplemented by emerging digital platforms. And that rather than counterpose one to the other, we instead need to develop a much greater literacy about the sociological use of platforms in every aspect of what we do, including publicly orientated work. And so in that sense, uh, we, want the book to be a contribution to practical reasoning uh, for Nisus. We want the book to be something that, as well as conceptually clarifying the field, helps people think about what they do, helps create the conditions in which people feel equipped to make effective decisions about the kinds of projects they engage in that are publicly orientated and how they pursue them. So while I'm not sure that necessarily counts as methods in the sense you were asking, those are kind of methodological strands underpinning the book. And, you know, as I said earlier, I, I think we wrote a very strange book. I think it's possibly the most unusual book I'll ever end up writing. And we really appreciated the review you wrote about it and a couple of other reviews. 
you know, kind of engage seriously with what we did. But it does sit outside uh, existing literatures in a slightly odd way because of this mix of conceptual analysis and uh, practical deliberation. But we felt that's what was needed, really, that this is a, a strange, messy field that would benefit from a, a strange book trying to think about that field in an unusual way. Mm. No, uh, thank you for that response, because often when we talk about methods, it also might mean the theoretical and the conceptual framework, like you described. Well, uh, could you also talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between publics and platforms? Because you do talk about exploring literature from platform studies. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, I, I guess, building on an... On an insight from STS. So the work of the STS scholar and digital sociologist Norbert Ramaris uh, from the University of Warwick is something we found very inspiring when developing these arguments. But the basic insight is that we never see the formation of publics, so a group forming around a common interest without an infrastructure which facilitates that coming together and the harmonization of attention. And in that sense, we would argue following this literature that all publics are reliant upon infrastructure to come together to support their togetherness and their assembly. And so we think of platforms in this sense as uh, assembly devices, uh, to use a term Notchamara suggested to me in an interview I did with her quite some time ago now. And so there's a conceptual point here, which is that publics always rely on devices to facilitate their assembly. But there's also a practical point, which is that once we recognize that's the case, and that these assembly devices are material, they're ways of resourcing and coming together, but they're also often semiotic as well. There are ways of framing the act of coming together, discursive ways of identifying the values or concerns that drive that movement together. And that once we recognize these assembly devices, these platforms as material and semiotic, we can begin to think about how we can construct assembly devices, how we can design and enact ways of bringing people together that are effective. And this, we stretch the notion of the platform, possibly to breaking point, a critic might suggest, to think of platforms as designed assembly devices and in the second half of the book, we think about how this process could be put to use uh, through digital scholarship and work in digital public engagement. So in that sense, something like a multi-author blog could be an assembly device. Uh, the New Books Network is perhaps one could see it as a, an iterated assembly device, a way of uh, coalescing audiences around a common format and facilitating that assembly through a shared structure, which lowers the costs of entering into, into this kind of arrangement and means that an audience is already in place. And one of the things we wanted to do was point to the creative uh, endeavors that academics have engaged in throughout the digital sphere, ones which often fall by the wayside. So People might enjoy them, they might engage with them, but in our view, they were severely under-theorized. And the kinds of sustained digital engagement projects that academics uh, enact and facilitate online are, are, are really important and, and really interesting. And 
clearly in some sense this is what public sociology looks like when enacted digitally and so we wanted to analyze exactly what that means but with a view to supporting people in doing it more effectively and to think about to what extent is it public so it's porous these resources are almost always openly available but are they engaging with non-academic publics explicitly are non-academic publics likely to stumble across them nonetheless where do these boundaries lie and does it matter? And so again, we're trying to cut across these conceptual and practical questions, but always with a view to understanding how we can do digital public sociology more effectively. Right. So a follow-up question, actually. Uh, what would you say are some of the main characteristics of public sociology that is performed online? Uh, that's a very, a very good question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's an awkwardly long pause as I, I as I think about what a good question that is. That's completely all right. You can take your time. Well, one one of the one thing that all these examples share, and which is a cause for concern that we explore in the book, is that they rely on, to varying degrees, on privatized infrastructure. And so in some cases, these might be projects that are independently hosted, but they rely on mass commercial social media platforms to dis disseminate their outputs. In some cases, they may exist entirely on mass commercial social media platforms. And what we've seen on Twitter since Elon Musk took over late last year in his long herald and long held takeover is a much greater awareness of the risks entailed by that. And so one of the concerns we explore in the penultimate chapter is the, the kind of privatized space of social platforms and the disproportionate role that corporate interests have in shaping norms and practices across them. And for example, in the way that Elon Musk's Twitter have brought back, you know, kind of many, um, racist, sexist, homophobic trolls have been let back onto the platform. The way in which the incentives on there have been skewed towards encouraging people to subscribe to Twitter Blue shows how when we rely on these private platforms, the rules of the game can be changed by fiat without notice at any moment. And one of the things that we point to is the possibility that we might begin to move towards uh, what's sometimes called a platform cooperative model. Uh, we might be able to socialize this infrastructure that universities might and funding agencies and other sectoral agencies might have a greater role to play in supporting this space, in making it sustainable and enabling academics to do publicly orientated work without having such a heavy reliance on these privatized spaces. So that concern cuts through the book really. And as we go along, it becomes a focal point in the, the last two chapters. And that reflects in answer to your question, uh, a sense that there's this structural weakness that these projects currently share. Um, another aspect, which is a slightly more positive one, is that doing public sociology in these spaces involves an articulation of a collective identity. And there's often an academic disdain or disinterest for questions of branding, 
But as someone who's run, um, you know, kind of multiple very high-profile blogs, has run podcast series, has been engaged in a wide range of other uh, public sociology projects online, I think what could be seen as branding is actually really important because this is part of what makes a, a, an assembly device. You create an identity which draws people together. So obviously individual items of content, blog posts, podcasts, tweets, videos, these are what circulate through these privatized social networks. But what keeps people coming back is a sense that you're engaged in something collectively. And we distinguish in the book between an individual academic uh, undertaking this activity and these sorts of collective projects, arguing that rendering them collective is very important because the risks and challenges involved in doing public sociology online are rendered more tractable if they're done by a group working together in some more or less defined way. And the, the kind of public identity is the expression of that group's togetherness. It's an expression of why they do what they do and what the reason for that is. Right. So uh, one thing that I have also wondered about is if you think that there are differences in the way public sociology is practiced in the global north from the global south. Uh, this is an aspect of the book that we really didn't do justice to. Um, in part because we were finishing off in the first year of the pandemic, and I think we got a bit preoccupied by that as a theme, where we should have been exploring the question you're posing in a much more extensive way than, than we did in it. Uh, so as an empirical question, uh, I'm not in a position to answer that, and I wish I could say that I was. On a conceptual level, I would suggest that the answer must almost certainly be, be yes, simply because of the different relationships to uh, hierarchies of attention, hierarchies of visibility, hierarchies of prestige in the academy. And so one of the most beneficial things about the global scale of mass commercial social media platforms is that they make global communication possible in a way that might not otherwise be, the tr be, be possible. And there are still hierarchies of language and visibility that shape who is seen and who is heard on a platform. But the capacity to coalesce an audience from anywhere in the world in a way that pragmatically negotiates those hierarchies, I still think is very exciting. And the kinds of coordination that become possible when we're using this sort of media infrastructure, I also still find exciting. Um, I mentioned in the book, the best example of this still that I've seen is the Global Dialogues magazine produced by the International Sociological Association. And whereas I, I think the exact number of languages that's translated into has varied over time as capacity waxes and wanes, it does give a sense of what this can look like in, in practice, where this, this magazine of general sociological interests is translated in, at one point, I think the, the high point was 18 languages. And the kind of internationalism that facilitates, I think, is, is enormously, enormously valuable. Um, so those are two sets of considerations in response to your question, which we, we did uh, deal with in the book, albeit nowhere near as extensively as we should have and could have. 
But I, I think you're asking a, a broader question as, as well. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Um, do, do you have a sense of how you would answer that? Uh, I have been thinking about it a little and trying to write as well. Well, in India particularly, currently there is an onslaught of a very right-wing government, particularly on higher education. And we are grappling with a new education policy as well. As a non-tenured academic, and that too, you know, an early career researcher, I think the kind of pressure that we are under to publish, to perform academic work, administrative work, leaves very little scope for anything else. So whatever is happening in the name of public scholarship or, you know, what public sociology is very difficult to even uh, conceptualize and talk about. So are we supposed to uh, forget about our academic and teaching duties? Because are they not academic work, public scholarship, or are we only supposed to concentrate on research because that gives you, you know, better jobs? So I see a disjunct in the way that uh, the idea of public scholarship is seen. Just one second uh, to add to what I was saying, you know, I, I also feel that there is an obsession with private uh, white degrees currently in private universities in India. And then uh, these people who are hired or recruited do have fancy degrees, but they're not willing to contribute to public scholarship because their connections uh, are very different uh, in nature. And what they aspire for more is, you know, journal-based articles. So who is doing the dirty work of so-called public academia is ultimately then regional and locally based academics, but they don't get acknowledged enough. So I would say it's a very complicated understanding. I'm still trying to make sense of it. Hopefully it is, you know, in some shape very soon. I don't know if it answered your question. Sorry. Uh, it, it does. Thank you. And I mean, the reason I'm asking is because I'm aware increasingly of my, my own parochialism. Uh, you know, I'm very embedded in the British academic context and uh, I'm aware of the limitations that mm -hmm. that leaves on my perspective. And the fact that I've been able to get to this stage of working on topics, you know, mm -hmm. without feeling particularly pressed to expand that is itself a symptom of of the problem. Um, and and so, you know, what, what you're saying is, it, you know, some of it is familiar to me in terms of the context that I know in terms of uh, the, you know, the kind of delegitimization and the, the hierarchies of prestige mm -hmm. and how those play out. But other parts are clearly inflected through dynamics that I, I'm less familiar with. And, you know, I, I, I hope that public sociology can be a, a way of talking mm -hmm. and thinking about the practice of these issues in a way that is mutually supportive and mutually enriching. But it is very hard to kind of keep a conversation about the kind of practicalities uh, because sociological audiences often, you know, want to slip into a more conceptual register again. And, you know, in saying that, I'm aware that throughout our conversation, I've been speaking very conceptually, you know, so I'm doing exactly the thing that I'm, I, I, I'm criticizing. But, you know, in terms of the kind of challenges you're describing, I've often wondered how we can develop forums on different levels, you know, kind of regional, national, international that facilitate, uh, you know, exchanges about common challenges and help us formulate strategies and tactics in order to 
to respond to that. Um, but like those sorts of conversations, in my experience, they tend to be marginal, despite the fact that they are they are very important. I mean, do you do you find that there are people you can talk to who about the practicalities of the situation that you're you're describing? Fortunately for me, yes, I do. But I don't know if that is the case for everyone. So it's a structural issue. Maybe I'll talk about it to you, you know, uh, after this conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very happy to and very interested to. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, last question, Mark. Uh, what is public sociology's relationship to the public that we are talking about? And can professional sociology ever be public sociology in, you know, an actual sense? Uh, so in terms of the relationship be between them, uh, I mean, this has tended to be conceived in a in a number of ways, um, which impute different levels of agency to the public. So, you know, one is the kind of dissemination model, which Michael Burrow has been criticized for reproducing, where professional sociology generates knowledge in here in the academy. And then public sociology is about ensuring the transmission of that knowledge and its uptake by groups outside the academy. And, you know, there's, there's certainly a role for that, I think, as much as it makes some people uncomfortable. Um, and to have sociological perspectives in national, international debates about political futures feels to me like it's inherently a positive one, even if it's limited, simply because, you know, one of the kind of characteristics of sociological knowledge is a sensitivity to issues of power, issues of inequality, stratification, uh, oppression, which would not feature to the same extent or at all with other forms of disciplinary expertise, such as psychology and economics, say, which do have a big public footprint. So one of the relationships between public sociology and publics is that kind of transmission, uh, public intellectual relationship. What Borowoy talks about is uh, traditional public sociology. So the sociologist speaking through, say, mass media, or more recently through social media. But the more interesting relationship is what he calls organic public sociology, um, which is sociologists working within movements, working within campaigns, working with publics on the ground in a way that is informed by and expresses sociological research. Uh, and so this, I think, is something that can be supported by social media. Um, it can facilitate new ways of engagement, low-key forms of collaboration and ways of dipping in and out of movements, which could be, you know, kind of practically useful. Um, but I think social media has much more immediate salience for the first kind of public intellectual role than it does for the second, but I think it is useful for both. And these I'd suggest are, you know, possibly the most useful way of thinking about the two relationships, or the relationships between public sociology and publics. I'm aware there's a second bit of your question, which I've now forgotten. Could you remind me? I uh, actually asked if you think, uh, if professional sociology could actually ever be public sociology, uh, well, this is a criticism that's often made of the whole concept of public sociology, um, suggesting that it's very much a product of the American Academy and the assumptions loaded into it. 
So the distinction between professional sociology and public sociology is on this view, uh, you know, symptomatic of problems that were avoidable in the first place. I've been very interested by the history of sociology in the UK, and particularly the kind of early precursor to the sociological review. Uh, so the sociological society in uh, pre-war Britain, uh, they were they were not professional sociologists, but they weren't public sociologists either, because when they weren't working inside a university, the whole differentiation between the two didn't make sense. And so I, I, I think once you get sociologists working within universities and sociology established as an academic dis discipline, there will always be an inward lookingness that comes from that because the reference group for sociologists will be each other to at least some extent. So I, I think there's always a tension once you have the professionalization of sociology, but the tension doesn't have to be a real divide of the sort that made Burrowoy's remarks initially necessary. Um, so professional sociology, uh, I think, can be public sociology for some people some of the time. And when we're in a contested, polarized, even dangerous political landscape, I, I think public sociology should perhaps be a specialism. Um, it should be something that we support people in doing and we see as requiring forms of expertise that a traditional disciplinary training in sociology possibly can't provide. So it becomes less a vocation of the individual public sociologist and more something which the discipline and its institutions actively seeks to support and encourage as a particular kind of way of practicing sociology. Uh, and Burroway, you know, for all the criticisms that have been made of his work, I think that's what he was ultimately trying to do when he started this debate. Uh, he was thinking about how this could be better recognized, better rewarded, better supported. But he did it in a way that does reflect the kind of epistemic assumptions and uh, limited vision that comes from professional American sociology, particularly being at the summit of professional American sociology, as he was. So th there were limitations, but I, I think there's a challenge there of uh, how we make public sociology something that is 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 viable, that is vibrant, is uh, supported, and is 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 possible as a kind of specialized practice um, within the confines of. Uh, professional sociology. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question. Um, I, I guess the shorter version would be, sometimes I think it's possible under some conditions. But I think it's a really good question. And it's kind of at the heart of what we were trying to do in the book, really, to you know pick apart when does the professional become the public and vice versa? And what is the role of digital media in answering that question? Yeah, I think it sums up pretty much the essence of the book as well. And thank you so much once again for talking about it. I have read it and it's been a privilege. Of course, it's one of the books that I've really enjoyed. So thank you once again, Mark, for doing this. It's my absolute pleasure. And thank you for your really interesting questions. Uh, I, I think I've made the book sound very theoretical today and maybe it is. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think kind of how I present it depends on what mood I'm caught in when I'm talking about it. And you, your questions were really thought provoking and they've got me wanting to go back and reread the book, which I think I've not done since we published it. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe both of us re it. So thank you once again. Yeah, thank you very much.